Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. Dear Lebanon, your location and your diversity put you at the hub between continents and cultures. You have an impressive ability to absorb hardships. Yet you rarely confront the causes of them. Who the hell is responsible? I still can't get the images out of my head. The explosion took me reeling back, back to the days of civil war. At the end of the war, the warlords were given promises of public money. We have the same politicians, the same ones who killed. They're still here, which is like, what? You have so much vested interests in the system, which led us to this very tragic situation. And why didn't the president do anything about it? I don't know. Corruption is eating up everything in the country. We have to buy bottles of water, which costs more than petrol now. The crazy floating power stations. The system will not be changed from the top. Elections are the only tool that we have. I don't believe the voting process is legitimate. So are you feel confident with your decision? 100%. If we do not fix ourselves, the people will revolt against us. We Lebanese people are strong. We're very strong, but we're stubborn. What is your dream for Lebanon? To become a nation. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 419. Releasing in select Australian cinemas in March, with more dates to come, is Enough, Lebanon in its Darkest Hour, a documentary that investigates and exposes how the ineptitude and corruption of the political class in Lebanon has resulted in a country on the brink of economic and societal collapse. A passionate and informative documentary that places the voice of the Lebanese people front and centre, Enough, Lebanon in its Darkest Hour, is the latest film from Lebanese Australian journalist turned filmmaker, Daisy Gideon. And Daisy, I thank you so very much for joining me today. Thank you, Matthew. And what a great summary. Beautiful. Love that uh, description. Well, thank you very much. Coming from yourself as a seasoned journalist, I, I, I really do appreciate that very much. Um, you know, when watching the film, the, the film begins with the Beirut port explosion of 2020. However, that isn't necessarily the catalyst for this movie because, you know, it's shown throughout the documentary, 
you were in Lebanon in around the globe, in fact, interviewing people 2017, 2018. It has been a long slog um, uh, up to the release date. I think it was um, late last year when uh, people in Australia saw it and you had a festival run before that. I know that back in 1996, you released Lebanon in Prison Splendor. And our film was very much about reclaiming your roots. To me, this film is 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 your doing your part to be an advocate for the people. Um, and I think the key word that I wrote down in my notes repeatedly was potential. The potential for Lebanon to be, you know, something. I'm not, I don't want to be insulting when I say it, but something greater than it is at the moment in regards to its uh, governance. Is that something that really pushed you um, to want to make this follow-up documentary to what you did back in 1996? Um, I, all I can say again is thank you, Matthew, for taking such a serious interest in the whole story and, um, you know, not a superficial glance. You've actually really um, absorbed gotten absorbed into both those stories and journeys. So I'm very grateful because you've, you know, provided the right context for us to have this conversation mm. and for the viewers to know where it all came from. So I really want to commend you on that because it's not every journalist or every presenter that does their homework. So bravo to you. Thank um, you. And you're absolutely right. Potential uh, is everything it screams and that is actually the pain of the whole storyline is that oh my god what it could be or it has so much you know you know those kids that are born with just innate talent and skill and then they just wasted yes it just gets it's it's like this country right now it, it has had an incredible history Lebanon it's you know 5,000 years and as I explain in the film that that point like it's this tiny piece of dirt that's had more trials and triumphs and um, than any other place in the world uh, it's so true this tiny little piece of dirt has gone through so much more challenges and obstacles and um, and 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 um, uh, disasters um, than anywhere else, just because of where it is. Um, it is at that real, real crossroads in in, in the world. Um, but yes, when you look at what it was and what it could be today, and it wasn't that long ago where it was living the highest, you know, emulation of itself in the fifties and sixties and early 70s that was really coming of age and showing its, um, you know, real potential and that the people had really understood the role they could play and um, and it was beautiful and historic and ancient and sophisticated and liberal and, and educated and, and religious and traditional and humble and, like, you this is the craziness of the whole place because it has all of that in this tiny 10,452 square kilometres. It's a tiny, tiny place. And, um, yeah, and all it needs is good governance. Mm. And um, that's the most critical thing that it's missing. I think what I really love about the, the film and there's many things to it is the interviews especially in regards to the Lebanese diaspora around, around the world. Mm -hmm. I think the number is like anywhere up to 14 million people 
outside of Lebanon um, who are actually like from from Lebanon itself. And I think that's just a, a result of just what we're we're going to be talking about, which in regards to mm-hmm. the poor governance of the country. You went around the globe, like pretty much everywhere. It's quite impressive, actually, for independent production, just how you managed to, to do it all. Um, you talked to all different type of expats um, about Lebanon, their experiences being there, their opinions of it today. How did you know who to interview? Um, and, uh, did you are these people that you knew of beforehand? Are these people that you had um, that people recommended to you? Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a list of people you wanted to get to that you couldn't? How did it all kind of come together in regards to your interview schedule and who you had in your film? Um, great question. And I look, of course, I knew of people around the world, and I have family all over the world. But you can't go around interviewing your family. That's you, um, you know, you're not going to get the um, right uh, perspectives. But uh, no, what we did was we had um, local producers in America, in Europe, in the UK, um, and you know, in Canada, and that who who recommended people like they they did their own research on who would be you know interesting characters in the French community, like in France and and London and stuff. So, like, they weren't sort of people I I knew. It was just they had a standing, not necessarily the highest standing or coming from, you know, it was just people who had an interesting story, um, you know, like Darina Aljundi, the former child TV star and actor mm. now in, in France. And I'd never heard of her, but I loved her, you know, her story and I loved her candour in the film and the way she, you know, tells it to you exactly the way it is. I apologise for that. I should turn off my notifications. It's okay. <laughs> um, but that was really how we did it. I really relied on... Um, um, producers in different um, cities to come back to us with different recommendations, and um, and it was wonderful that way because I got exposed to more interesting characters and people in America too, like all over America, who I hadn't hadn't uh, heard of, but um, um, you know, so, and aware, I wasn't aware of. So it was great for me too, and to be able to have those conversations and really all leading to the, you know, the final three questions that I asked everyone um, where you got really down to the nuts and bolts of of it all. Um, but, yeah, that's how we did it. But it was really important to have conversations with the diaspora because, as you started and saying, there's so many outside, 14 to 16 million, we're not quite sure exactly how many, but far more Lebanese outside than there are inside. There's about four and a half million Lebanese <laughs> in Lebanon, but the population is probably around 6.2 million. But the other remainder is made up of refugees, Palestinian and Syrian refugees mm. who are counted as part of the population. And from that, I think it's like one million Syrian refugees, isn't there? A minimum, yeah. yeah. Look, when I was there, they sort of put it down to 1.5 registered um, that was 2018, but the you know the, the United Nations. Um, I spoke to UNICEF and people and others saying you know it could be around 2.2 because there's a lot that flowed across the border that weren't registered. Um, but there was about 500,000 Palestinian refugees still you know in Lebanon too from 1948. You know they started coming in after the first after the state of Israel was established. 
And the other interviews that you have are with some real big headers in the political landscape in, in Lebanon. And we're talking about like the former Prime Minister Saad Hariri. And let me just mm. say right now, I apologise for any mispronunci- mispronunciation yeah, of names right now. Um, <laughs> you had um, the, the prominent Hezbollah minister, Mohammed Thenek. Uh, um, you had the um, central bank governor, Riyad Salami. And I, I think his interview was really interesting because, mm. you know, a lot of these guys, a lot of these people, a stone cold either doing a lot of political backspeak or just stone lying to you right, right to your face. And then afterwards you will see the ramifications of what exactly they've done and resignations, et cetera. That was like really interesting to watch. Um, and a lot of mm. these people you've talked to, have, they haven't really spoken to Western journalists for years. I think uh, Sahad Hariri hadn't spoke to Western journalists for five years and the, the minute mm. the Hezbollah minister they didn't give up like a Western journalist interview since 2006. That, that comes across as a question of just, how hard was it to get interviews with these really prominent kind of like controversial figures? And once you are in the room with them, what type of environment is that like for you? Because you're coming in there with a documentary that, of course, is going to be critical of the decisions that they made. And I imagine mm-hmm. they don't like people telling them that they have made bad decisions. So how did mm-hmm. that kind of all work for you? <laughs> Okay, well, well um, firstly, to answer the first part, um, the, the length of time it took to get some of those interviews was the main characters, the ones you're talking about, the Prime Minister, the, the Hezbollah Minister, um, you're right, you know, they, they hadn't given an interview in 12 years and um, to a Western journalist, so I was very lucky. But that took 18 months or 19 months to wow. get that interview. Um, you know, continually finding, you know, other people who had more influence. It really came down to finding the right person with the right sway and leverage over that person or that office um, that got us that interview. And the same with the Prime Minister, um, at least uh, 16, 18 months with, to get the Hariri interview. And, again, it came down to one person because we tried every avenue uh, but someone had leverage and and they said, you know, you got to do this interview. You, you need to <laughs> um, take the interview and they they did it, but um, they accepted. Um, yeah, all of them. Unlike some of them, I, 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 despite, I tried for 20 months to get Aon, uh, President Aon, um, no, you know, no, uh, no luck there. And um, Wally Jumblot, who I'd interviewed in my first film in the 90s, um, I thought he was going to be the easiest because he's he's on every interview. He's taking every media interview. He loves to talk. But um, mm-hmm. for some reason it was really hard and we had even, my producer had even met his wife and had uh, bumped into her at the gym at the hotel we were staying at and she, you know, he thought, oh, you know, um, he asked her and we went through different avenues but no and Nabi Buri, you know, the silver fox, the guy who's considered the most sneakiest one of the entire lot of them, um, the Speaker of the House, um, there was no chance. And so many different people with contacts and, yeah, it wasn't going to happen. So the ones that we did get were we were very grateful for. I mean, you know, we got um, Jaja, we got Riyad Salami, the, um, as you mentioned, we got Gibran Basile, who is the former foreign minister and who's real, the one who's one who's had sanctions placed against him by the United Nations for right. involvement with um, Hezbollah. Um, we, yeah, so it was 
I always said to the crew, look, we will get the interviews we get. We must try and push and get all of the ones that we'd like, but those that are meant to be will be in the film and that's all that we need to get, you know, and I believe that I'm very uh, driven by faith and that, you know, I must try, but if it doesn't happen, it wasn't meant to happen. So, and and I have, as you witnessed, I think more than enough evidence and facts that, you know, I pulled the story together with a lot of research, just mm. countless, countless hours of reviewing and researching um, to, to make sure the facts were correct, you know, validation, because everything, everything hangs on credibility, as you would know. Like um, people aren't going to believe you if your story has holes in it or it doesn't sound credible. So getting World Bank uh, resource uh, sources to quote, getting New York Times, getting, um, you know, the um, organisation of crime and corruption around the world that is a online, you know, publication that researches, investigative journalists that research corruption, you know, at the highest levels, um, using, I had to do, do a whole lot of um, research to be able to find the proof Um and I think that that is the thing that's really stood me in good stead around the world with people when they watch it because they see that I'm not trying to, you know, as I hope you saw, that I'm I'm not going after anybody. And as you started this conversation, I'm 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 just an advocate for the people. That's yeah. my job, you know. Is I'm I'm just presenting their, you know, concerns and and the speaking on their behalf in those interviews, which leads us into part two of your question. Sorry, I talk so much. I have okay. so much to say. But um, that second part of the question of how it was sitting in the room, um, you know, where it happened, uh, is it was, it was a responsibility, Matthew. It, when I sat across the desk or the room or, in, you know, when I sat with them, the conversation, some of them were much easier than others, like the Minister for Justice, uh, much more difficult, much easier to have that conversation than than the Prime Minister or um, yeah, Riyad Salami or Mohammed Naish, the Hezbollah minister. Like I, but again, I didn't feel in any way <clears throat> um, um, fearful. I felt responsible that I had to take this opportunity just to, to ask the question yep. and I genuinely wanted an answer and I didn't go in there accusatory blaming with a you know you know sometimes it's like you go badger the, the mm. interviewee mm-hmm. it's not a good interview technique you know because the, the, then the defenses come up and they become more defensive in their responses and I think that is one thing that really worked in my favour because when they felt I was genuinely asking the question, and I'm sure you saw that in my interview with Saad Hariri, like, you know, I wasn't, I was emotionally genuinely asking and saying to him, like, this is how they feel, this is, we believe, you know, this is, um, you, you saw his sort of flicker of the eyes in the, you know, when there was, I was basically accusing him of being corrupt but didn't use those exact words, um, right. you know, him and his posse, the group. Um, and I think that is um, really critical to 
the energy during the conversation. So he actually only gave me a half an hour to do that interview, for instance, and um, despite some of the hard questions that I went in straight in with because I didn't know how much time I was going to be given, so I started with those hard questions. Um, half you know, When the time came up and his media advisor said the time is up, um, you know, I asked him if we could continue and he said, yes, let's continue. So I got an extra half an hour or so with him, which was excellent. So I got to ask him some more juicy questions. But, um, you know, it was, I think, because he felt the genuineness of my questioning, not the attacking. Um, and I uh, And I think that's really the way it was with most of them. I didn't walk out of there. Um, with any antagonism or feelings, you know, it could have gone either way. Like for them, like I think they are honestly answered to the best of their ability and they believe what they were saying. Mm -hmm. So when you said, you know, later when you see, okay, they said that, but then you see the facts afterwards that I present, um, you know, what can you do? Like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to attack them I'm just presenting facts and that's my job you know is to find the truth so and, and um, I, I think that kind of approach that you have towards your interview technique comes from order deck as you had as a seasoned reporter and a journalist because I think that's the approach the best approach that works it really does and I, I, I'd imagine though that in well, well the interviews that you will have will say kind of like uh Sahad Ariri will be different to say someone who you will talk to who is actually living in Lebanon um, dealing mm. with all these kind of situations. There'll be a different kind of tactical approach in that kind of interviews, wouldn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, in the sense that, you know, they're not, they don't have responsibility at the right. highest levels of governance. Um, but what they do have, uh, Matthew, is a responsibility for their life because I'm not, you know, I don't like playing the victim. I like people to realise how powerful we are as individuals and, but, you know, and, and and I did have some challenging conversations and sadly I couldn't put everything in the film but I, I will be releasing small snippets and vignettes of stories over the next couple of years um, mm. as this continues because there's amazing captures and little stories that didn't make it into the, you know, they ended up on the cutting room floor. But, but um, um, yeah, look, we as people also are responsible for where we are and who governs us, you know. As a democracy, Lebanon is a real democracy and we really have the right to choose who our leaders are. Um, but we have abstained, you know, as you saw with the results in the 2018 elections, 51% didn't even vote. So right. well, if you're not even in the game and you don't even care to vote, then, well, you deserve everything you get, right? So. Mm. That's where people, and that's, as you notice, part of the real message of this film is, um, you know, but we, um, those conversations were about them them and their lives and, the, you know, the um, experience of Lebanon for as, an, as someone living in that country and how hard it was to find out how difficult it was. And you saw people like Hala, the yoga teacher and lawyer, and you know she's in her early thirties, and she just she just wants normal roads to drive on. She wants to be able to go to the beach, you know, um, that's not a privately owned beach and clean beach. And 
these simple, you know, expectations and, you know, somebody saying, you know, I just want to have public transport or I just want to be able to have 24-hour electricity. Like these are the most, um, sorry, um, these are the most basic needs that any government is expected to deliver to its citizens and these are not and haven't been delivered for, you know, decades to these to the people. So it's um, how do you how do you live and a life of? We we'll go back to that first question. The potential of an individual is compromised so significantly, and and um, is limited by the fact that they don't even have this basic needs. You know to be able to shelter and safety and security is what every single human being on the earth require as basic needs. Um, and, and it's from there that they flourish and thrive into their potential. Some use their potential, some waste it, but um, at least, you know, they have that. So it, it's the same as living in underprivileged areas in Australia and, you know, in America, everywhere, you know, those people in those underprivileged country uh, sections of our community have so much more hurdles to overcome before they're able to really, you know, um, express themselves. And so, you know, when someone from those communities does make it, it's a huge deal, you know. It's amazing, the, you know, the... The, those stories because of what they've had to overcome, you know. The Maths Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by 80s Tees. 80s Tees is an online retailer of licensed t-shirts and pop culture gear from your favourite movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, comic books and musicians. Celebrate your inner 80s nerd and click on the link in the show notes below to get the raddest retro t-shirts delivered to your door. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Loot Crate. Founded in 2012, Loot Crate is the worldwide leader in fan subscription boxes. Loot Crate partners with industry leaders in entertainment, gaming, sports, and pop culture to deliver monthly themed crates, produce interactive experiences in digital content, and film original video productions. No matter what you geek out about, Loot Crate has a subscription box for you. To get your very own exclusive collectibles, apparel, and gear delivered to your door, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is also brought to you by Voodoo. Watch the latest movies and TV shows anytime, anywhere. No subscriptions, no contract. Enjoy stunning quality in up to 4K ultra high definition at home and download and watch on your mobile device as well. To rent and buy from over 100,000 titles or watch thousands of movies free with Voodoo Movies on us, be sure to click on the link in the show notes below. Now, back to the show. In, I think the Beirut explosion really was kind of like the last kind of like straw um, that, that broke like, you know, the, the back of the people mm -hmm. of Lebanon. And from that came that revolution in 2019. Um, and I had the amazing footage that I've seen in your documentary and, of course, in the news as well of 2 million people marching mm. in the streets in unison, no matter what type of uh, religion or what, what, what yes. have you, everyone was there together 
with a with a voice. And the thing about revolutions like that is like they can either spread like wildfire or they could be blown out uh, very quickly. And mm. you know, the, the when revolutions are blown out, like what we saw in Cuba um, the last year, where people were protesting, the strong arm of the government like very quickly kind of snuffed that candle out in regards to what happened in Lebanon. Lebanon, COVID was the was the thing that really just took the wind out of the sails um, yeah. of that. Do you think that now that hopefully things are better in regards to COVID in, over in Lebanon? I can't I can't say whether it is or not. I'm not sure in regards to um, how, you know, whether they're still struggling with the, the virus over there. Do you think that there is still that kind of, rumbling do you think there is still that kind of like that kind of um anger and frustration towards the government there where perhaps that revolution of 2019 will be rekindled once again um because i know there's a elections coming up again mm-hmm. um is there potential for perhaps that kind of movement to 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 uh, reinvigorate itself in the streets of lebanon look the um they they've been doing it but not to that extent um what they what happened and you're right i mean the the revolution went underground or went into um had to go inside basically instead of outside um after covid hit and the explosion that happened in 2020 reinvigorated the revolution um, despite COVID, but they couldn't stay on the streets because it wasn't safe, but they didn't need to. So I was fortunate enough last year after the film won an award in Cannes in July and we got to go over there. Um, we We were supposed to be away for two weeks, but because... Australia locked its borders. We were we were we were locked out of Australia and um, um, had to spend four to five months outside the country till I could get back uh, get back in. Um, but you know, unless I want to spend thirty two thousand dollars to fly on a one way ticket, and I said, "Yeah, forget that. Mm. <laughs> That's how much it was going to cost me." But um, during that lockout of the country, I got to spend about two and a half three months in Lebanon. Um, because it was the cheapest place for me to stay, but it was also because I have relatives there. But um, I also got to meet with all of those groups that you're talking about, lots of groups that had gone underground from the revolution because the revolution was comprised, as you mentioned, people from entire across the full width width and breadth of the country, all faiths, all socioeconomic statuses, um, all beliefs, but all united for change, all united for get these, you know, MFs out of here, we've had enough. You know, the first time they ever, um, you know, started to actually call the names out and they, you saw them with cutouts of those leaders, you know, um, with nooses around their heads, you know, that was, they never, ever, ever would be dared to have done anything like that before because those people, the Birris, the Aons, the Basils, the Saad Hariris, all of those people had so much um, power and influence and fear um, in, 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 in ingrained into the people that they would never mention their names or a Nasrallah, sorry, the Hezbollah leader, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, they would never call them by their name and they would never um, attack them visually with images or anything. But 
the revolution. They were out there with nooses around their necks and in cutouts of these people, and that continued after the blast. Um, so that was a real shift in in with you know that's it. We're we're done with this bullshit. Um, but that. So when I was in those uh, in that period last year, meeting with those groups, there was what I was delighted and so happy about was to see them working concertedly, seriously, smartly towards the elections. They had formed little groups and parties and trying to do alliances and and um, um, to to represent to produce candidates to stand in the elections in which are in May 2022, as you mentioned, a couple of months from now. So Mm. we've got, um, so that's what happened to the revolution. Um, And I don't think, God forbid, we'll, you know, we, we, everyone is trying to avoid war in Lebanon. Everyone's trying to avoid conflict. Everyone's trying to keep, keep calm heads. Because the last thing the Lebanese want is another blood-stained uh, massacre um, on their hands, and they don't need any more martyrs, as you saw in the film. The number of martyrs that Lebanon has lost is is sad. It's just tragic. It so. is sad, and, and only last year, um, Lokman Slim, who was a, a mm. activist and a Hezbollah critic, he was found dead after being disappeared for a year. And um, you know, I think yeah. it comes to my next question, which is that. You know, I don't mean this in any uh, to stir any type of hysteria on my part or anything else. But you know, the film is releasing in in Beirut in Lebanon in April. From from what I last heard, um, yes. Have you know when I've talked to documentary filmmakers before, just filmmakers in general that are critical of a certain governments or, or countries, they have talked about ramifications. Um, mm. Are you at all concerned about ramifications towards yourself? Because this film has grown in popularity over the months uh, and a lot of it it's on your part of uh, all the interviews you've done and everything you've really done a great job really pushing this independent documentary out there for people to see and your reaction towards it I think has been like really welcoming and positive but I imagine that some of the people um, in the echelons of power uh, will mm. not be too happy with it are you concerned whatsoever mm. in regards to ramification towards you? Because I know that I um, heard an interview if you did like back in December that people were talking about security for yourself is that something that's still on the cards for yourself and i i will you be in Beirut? have you had plans of going back to present the film or are you going to stay in sydney while that happens um i'm definitely going to beirut i was i was hesitating for a long time about whether i would go because of security issues definitely and um yes i've had people including ambassadors, um, when we screened it in Beirut privately, our, our ambassador, the Australian ambassador, had a private screening for about 20 ambassadors in um, Beirut to show them the film. At least four or five of them uh, asked me if I had security and suggested I needed security because these men are dangerous, to quote them directly. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me, not to go back, um, America and Europe and Australia. And honestly, I was very torn, Matthew, whether to go back or not. Um, and then I've, I've, I've taken steps in the last month. Um, 
before I made the decision to go back um, to be there, I'm going to be there for the screening, the launch premiere in 20, in 90, on the 9th of April. I am going to be there. But before I made that decision, I did reach out to the Australian Embassy, the American Embassy, and different, you know, people in security. And I have a conversation today with a, a meeting today with another person in security and I am meeting with people from DFAT before I fly out in the mm. next couple of weeks. Um, so, look, it's all possible. Uh, people were bullying and cyberbullying me and attacking me in um, December and uh, there was, you know, those sort of boycotts too. So sort of um, amongst the community who don't want this film to be seen by many Lebanese. They don't want that fact, those facts to be to be known by the general community because they want to keep us all, um, you know, in the dark and easily, you know, manipulated and exploited and um, feed, being by their propaganda. Mm. Uh, but honestly, I, um, I had hoped to take my kids with me and have a... Hello, Daisy. You there? You've, you've broken up there. Beautiful premiere in Lebanon, but I've, they're not. I'm, I'll take them. Oh. Yeah. Can, you, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Sorry, Sorry. I, don't, I just missed out in the last 20 seconds or so. I was just saying, I, I um, talking about my kids that I had planned for my kids to come back to Lebanon with me for the premiere, um, but I decided that, that um, they shouldn't come back with me, that mm -hmm. I'll take the risk for myself, but I won't put my kids in harm's way. So, but I definitely will be going to Lebanon. I leave on the 1st of April out of Australia and um, and I have people on the ground coordinating the launch in Lebanon, across Lebanon for me. And and we hope that it'll re-inspire. What, what this film is doing is is the more people watch it, the more people want to get, get up and go and vote. Yes. So what we're hoping is that we get to show this film across Lebanon and keep the cinema door open um, through the generosity of people in the diaspora, the immigrants outside who we're trying to get them to sponsor a ticket through our GoFundMe page, which I'd be grateful if I could send you the link to and you could post it with this uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but basically it's um, it's Global Watch Party in solidarity with Lebanon. Um and, and what we're doing is really the because this film, when you watch it as, as a non-Lebanese, I'm sure you feel agitated and, and like, God, you've got to go and vote, guys. Like I hope that that's how it made you feel like, you know, of course you have to vote. but And, and that's what it's doing to Lebanese too. And um, we're trying to get them out of this rut of feeling like they have no voice, their voice doesn't matter. And that's what this message that really one of the central themes of the film is to show them how powerful we are when we unite together and actually go and vote and that they have got candidates to stand uh, to vote for this time around because a lot of those people that we're talking about, those revolutionary people had for, have formed parties that they can vote for and have got candidates standing in these elections that are coming up. So um, yeah, that's the real push of this um, 
this launch in Lebanon is to get the Lebanese to go to the cinemas and watch it and watch it for free. So, again, because they have no money because of the economic collapse and the, the uh, obviously they lost all their money in the banking in the banking crisis and collapse. And um, so we're, we're trying to sponsor them. It's a $20 movie ticket, which includes popcorn, T-shirt and, and drink and whatever, giving them an experience, a reason to get out to the movies. So... Um, yeah, it's uh, this is why I want to be there and stand with them. I'm I'm standing in solidarity with them too, and uh, I will be taking caution and and getting security for me. Um, you know, so I'll do whatever I need to do um, to protect myself as well. But yes, definitely, it's a, an issue for security. Well, I think what you've done with this documentary is um, incredibly, incredibly important. You've really served to be a, a voice for the um, Lebanese people, not only in Australia but globally and especially in Lebanon um, itself. And for people out there, you can actually find more information in regards to uh, the documentary Enough, um, Lebanon's Darkest Hour. Um, so if you go to uh, Facebook, if you type in enough.movie, it will take you to the Facebook page, which is really cool. There's really always updates there. Um, for example, um, there's uh, screenings that are going to be on this um, Saturday and Sunday at uh, Hoyt's Bankstown, um, including the Q&As with yourself, Daisy. And people yeah. should always che also check out Enough Movie. Uh, enough.movie, uh, that's the website, and that also has um, everything in regards to screenings as well and FanForce are also, um, you can have tickets at FanForce as well. And I'll put all the links for all of these um, uh, websites in, uh, in the show notes below of this podcast because I really, really recommend people do uh, watch this movie. It doesn't matter whether you're um, uh, Lebanese or not. I think it's a really, it's a story I think a lot of people can actually relate to. And I think the, the reason, Daisy, why I um, was really kind of like, um, really kind of drawn to this story is because myself coming from a Croatian background, it wasn't that like 30, 40 years ago, but Croatia had its own civil war. Yeah. And from that, the vacuum yes. of that war came corruption. And from that came um, yeah. high unemployment and other things as well that I think are eerily similar to the situations happening in Lebanon. So it's important that this movie uh, be seen not only as a Lebanese story, even though it is a very much a Lebanese story, but it's very much a global story as well that everyone should watch. And um, and, and Daisy Gideon, I thank you so very much for your time today. Congratulations with the documentary. And best of luck with the upcoming screenings, especially one in Beirut. I'm sure it's going to be a very emotional time for you to, to show that movie there, but uh, a very important one as well. Thank you. And, and it's great that you're Croatian. You know, I was invited to a festival in Croatia. So I had an audience uh, in APOX. It was um, down in, uh, uh, I can't pronounce it now, um, beautiful island south of uh, Zagreb. But um, so there's, you know, 100 or so Croatians who watched the film and they were like exactly what you just said. Like, you know, mm -hmm. of course they had no idea about Lebanon and all of this, but they said we definitely can relate to it, you know, in our in our society and they really understood their responsibility because you've got a voluntary system in uh, voting in Croatia too, like yeah. how important it is for them to vote. But yes. thank you so much, Matthew, for this opportunity. I'm so grateful and it was a fascinating discussion with you. Thank you.